So uh, before we open the word together this morning, um, just wanted to fill you in on one other thing, and that is um, last Sunday, being that it was uh, New Year's Day, we did something a little different around here. We just had one service at 11, and uh, we uh, just asked the congregation during the month of December to submit any questions that they might have, things they wanted to know about, whether they were theological issues or personal issues or whatever. We had a great time last Sunday. It was really fun. Um, One of the questions directed towards me was, so Pastor Ken, is there anything special coming up in the new year? And um, in case you weren't here last week, I wanted to give you a heads up on something. I felt like God really dropped in my heart for us as a church body, and that's this. Um, I'm calling us to a 10-day liquid fast. Yeah, you're about as excited as I was when God dropped that in my heart. Uh, And, you know, the closer it gets, the more I'm like, what was I thinking? But I know I wasn't thinking. No, that doesn't sound right. Anyhow, uh, I know this is something God just kind of plopped in there. We're going to start this fast on the 17th of January. The 17 number is the number of victory in Scripture. I, for one, could use some victory in nineteen. In this new year, okay, almost since 1912, 2012. Any of you need some victory? If your hand didn't go up, you need victory over that lying spirit that obviously is possessing you full bore. Um, Whether it's personal life, family, city, church, nation, world, I don't care. Uh, We need some victories, okay? And I believe that's what God wants this for. When I say liquid fast... I'm not talking about, so all you can do is uh, drink water and a little bit of juice and broth or tea. I really, really, I mean this, really, felt like God said, I just leave that up to you, you, to seek him, to see what that means. Smoothies, protein shakes, probably not a T-bone steak in the blender. You could ruin the blades of your blender doing that, but it's really up to you. I mean, if if you would come to me and say, Pastor Ken, I felt like the Lord said I could have three big milkshakes from Dairy Queen every day, you'd get no argument from me. I mean that. It would explain why you gain 20 pounds on a 10-day liquid fast, but I'm not going to... There's grace abounds in this thing, okay? I think part of it is just that we get out of our routine and we do something different. So we'll start midnight on the 17th. It'll go until the 26th. And we will break the fast. Sundown on the 26th is at 512. Uh, Not that I'm looking forward to that time or anything, but uh, at 612, for those of you that want to, we will gather back here for about 10 minutes, literally. We are going to collectively lift up our requests of victory to God, and we are going to thank Him for the victories that are coming. But then... I wanted to do this. I'm going to buy Chick-fil-A for everybody who participates, okay? So we'll have Chick-fil-A sandwich and some chips and some uh, soda pop or something like that. So next week, we're going to have a sign-up for this. I'm not going to go buy 500 sandwiches and hope you all come. Uh, I want to know who's coming. So we'll have a sign-up either here Sunday or online. Uh, I really encourage you to participate. You know, if this were, I was thinking this morning, if this were the Old Testament and I was Moses, I could call a fast and you'd all have to participate. Unfortunately, I'm only your pastor, and this is America, and so you, this free will thing is huge. Um, but with everything in me, I want to encourage you to be a part of this, okay? We need some victory. And uh, I think there's something powerful collectively when we do this. Okay, um, we got a little video. Oh, one other thing. On the board between the two offices, there's some information. If you want to know more about some energy protein kind of shakes you can do to keep your strength and energy up, there's little tear-off flaps. You can get more information about that. And we got a little video from Pastor Cheryl with regards to, so what can families do? You know, we don't just want to make this a big people thing and kids are excluded. How can we include families? So just watch this a second if you would. So Pastor Kent has just talked to you about the upcoming fast that he's wanting to do in January. And when we were talking about this, I remembered last time when we did a fast that many parents would say to me, you know, I'm cooking one meal for my husband and I and another meal for the kids because our kids can't do this. And I just want to encourage you to bring your kids along with you in this fast, to have them partake in this too. 
Obviously, the fast would look different for them. Children cannot do a liquid fast. Typically, it's not a good thing for their diet unless a doctor prescribes that. But what you can do with your kids is have them give up something um, after dinner. Like if you guys typically in your home do an after dinner um, dessert or a snack later, just to give that up dur during this time. I believe it's for 10 days. What you can do instead is you could have write out some Bible verses and put those verses in the pantry or the kitchen cabinet, wherever you keep those special desserts. And when you're wanting one of those or your kids are, have them go pull out a verse and look at that together. Look it up in God's word and just look at that and just see what God's wanting to show you, your kids, your family during this time. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that all of us need to learn. It's just like the discipline of, of prayer and meditation and devotion and many of the other disciplines. And this is a great time for your kids to start learning what fasting is about and as they watch you. And really, it's a great time for you as a family to come together and just be lifting each other up and praying during this time. So I encourage you to, as a family, look at what this fast can mean for all of you. I agree. So that's, that's good. Where were we? Oh, I know. Revelation, right? Chapter 6, right? Okay, that's where we find ourselves. The revelation of the Apostle John. Well, actually, you know, it's, that's not quite accurate. The revelation is Jesus' revelation, okay? God gave it to him, and then John was pretty much just the transcriber of this revelation. I want you to understand as we jump back into this, I'm going to take a quick minute to review a couple things, but I want you to get this from the get-go. This message, this book, this revelation is straight from the throne room of God. This comes from God himself. This is from headquarters, folks. This is from Command Central, okay? And it is not just, well, here's a glimpse into the future. Here's a preview of coming attractions. It is so much more than that. This book, time after time after time, is to convince us of two things. Number one, God is sovereign. God is absolutely in control. Pastor Kent, you think God's in control of this chaotic mess we call the world? I absolutely believe that. Because he said that was the case. But the book is also written... To show us God's great mercy, grace, and love. In the midst of the judgment and the justice that is coming from him, the message is really all about his mercy and grace. That will make more sense as we continue to unpack this book. But I'm amazed by that, and I hope that you will be also. This first verse, the book starts out talking about this revelation of Jesus, the things which must soon take place. We have to understand that word must. It's talking about an inevitable result or outcome of a pre-designed, predetermined plan. God is not up in heaven freaking out and going, how did that happen? What did they do that for? He knew these things must take place. They must soon take place. Some of your Bibles might say shortly. Does that word drive anybody else crazy? Does it ever feel like soon and shortly must be words we don't understand? Golly. It helps me to know that when it says soon or shortly, it's not a time issue. It's, it's talking about something that will happen without delay, meaning nobody, no thing can thwart the plan of God happening exactly when God wants it to happen. That's the context of that word. One of the patterns that we've seen so far as we've worked our way through the first five chapters and that we will continue to see as we continue in this study is that there's a shifting back and forth in this book in terms of perspective, okay? You have a view from heaven. There's a focus upon God and upon his sovereignty and his goodness. And then the scene will shift back to the earth. And we'll look at the calamity and the craziness that's going on in, in the world. The result of living in a fallen world, okay? If you remember, chapter 1 starts with the vision of the risen Christ. It's a heaven focus. It's a God's focus to establish the fact that God's sovereign, God's in control, God's good, 
Don't worry about it. And then we go to chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters written to the seven churches. I said to you, and I believe this, those were real historical churches that those letters were written to. Talks about real problems that they needed to overcome. It talks about the victories that they were having that God commended them for, that they were to celebrate. I said as we covered those seven letters, I think there's a dual purpose in their being written. Obviously, absolutely to help those churches at that point in time. But I believe that they form, when you put those seven letters together, they give us a composite picture of what God hopes for his church today. The things that we also need to overcome if we're wrestling with those same struggles or sins and the victories that we need to continue to walk in and to continue to pursue. And I believe that to the degree that we follow and live out what those seven letters say, we will be more prepared, better apt to handle what's coming to this world, more able to walk in the victory that God wants us to have in the midst of this chaotic mess. Have you noticed it's a chaotic mess? Oh my golly. Well, that's chapters two and three. Chapters four and five, which we covered at the end of November, were a view into God's throne, his very throne room. There was a vision there of the Lord Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who appeared as a lamb that was slain. This amazing picture of the power, majesty, and might of God coupled with his mercy and grace that offered himself as that sacrifice for sin. We saw that lamb who was slain break those seven seals that were on the scroll. That scroll either represented all of history, the story from cover to cover of God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time till the end of time, or it's possible that it was more focused on the end times and how that plan was going to unfold. Bottom line is chapters 4 and 5 give us a detailed and awesome picture of God's sovereignty, his goodness designed to give you great comfort, great assurance, and great peace. Do you know why God went to all the trouble of putting chapters 4 and 5 in that book? Because from chapters 6 to 18, it's a mess. We're about to embark on a part of the study that looks at chaos like we have never seen chaos before. It's going to get really bad on this earth. Some bad things are coming. That's why chapters 4 and 5, and that's why chapter 4 starts with this, a reiteration of the very first verse of the book. After this things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Folks, there is a pattern and a theme throughout this book that continues to want us to know, I'm in charge, I'm still in control, you don't have to worry. Is there anybody in this room who would say to me, you know, somebody told me that 25 years ago and I haven't worried since. Or rather, are we as people in need of a pretty continual, constant, it's going to be okay. You don't need to worry. I got it in control. Don't sweat it. Isn't that more the way life works? We need continually reminded. This book does that over and over and over again for us. We also see that God's plan from chapter 1 to chapter 22, is one of redemption. Jesus came to fix what we broke and to buy back what we forfeited, what we lost. Not only is the book of the Revelation about that, from Genesis 1 to to Revelation 22, that's the story. That story never changes. Now, the real truth is when we talk about redemption, for some, for believers, for those who bow their knee to Christ and his lordship, salvation is what awaits them. That's what redemption is going to look like, eternity in heaven with God. But for the rest, for the wicked, judgment is coming. Damnation, eternity in hell by their choice. Let's be real clear about that, okay? So the bottom line is when, when the end comes, when game is over, There's going to be no loose ends and no unfinished business. When we get to the end of this book, it's all going to be taken care of in God's perfect wisdom, mercy, and justice as only he could do.
Now, one more point of quick review before we launch into chapter 6, and that is this. I shared with you, and it took a couple weeks to do this, three views of the rapture. Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. Let me real quickly, in a nutshell, tell you what those mean. To be a person who believes in a pre-tribulation rapture means you believe that Jesus is coming and will take the church out of this world prior to chapter 6. If you're a mid-tribulation rapture person, you believe Jesus is going to take us out of here sometime between chapter 6 and 18. And that varies somewhat. If you're a post-tribulationist, you believe that the rapture will occur at the end of chapter 18, beginning of chapter 19. And the reason why that's so important is, whichever one of those you hold to will have great bearing on how you read this book. What you think that means, and oh, what you think that means, and what that symbolizes, and what that stands for. I spent some time, if you weren't here, go online and you can listen. Because it's important for you to at least understand, even if you don't come to your own strong conclusion. I'm a post-tribulation rapture person, okay? I can see mid-tribulation as a possibility, but I think the church is going to be here through some difficult times. One of the big keys for me, one of the big reasons why I believe that is, I read scripture and I see a big difference between what the Bible talks about when it talks about tribulation, difficulties that are going to come upon this world, some as a consequence of man's sin and man's choices and man's rebellion, and some of that tribulation that is going to be what the wicked put against believers. And if you've been paying attention at all over the course of history, and especially in the days in which we live, that's escalating, not disappearing. Just in this morning's paper, there was a story of, uh, it was somewhere in the Middle East, I should have cut the article out, 15 people were, were killed when a radical, I believe it was Muslim group, bombed the church and killed all the people in there. That's what we talk about when we talk about tribulation. But the wrath of God is something very different. The wrath is his doing. It's much more severe, much more intense, and it is coming upon the wicked, not upon the church, not upon believers, but upon the wicked, the evil, the rebellious world in which we live. Steve, you're here. Steve Lewis is going to come and read chapter six for us this morning. Every time, every week, we're going to have the scripture recovering read out loud because Revelation 1-3 talks about a blessing that comes to those who read it and to those who hear it. And so we're going to read our way through every verse of this book before we're done. And even if the preaching stinks, you're going to be blessed. I hope that was a joke. Uh, it was supposed to be. So, Steve, it's on. Thank you. Would you stand, please, as we hear together the word of God from Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. 
and the stars of the skies fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Amen. Thank you, Steve. You can have a seat. Any of the rest of you hear that and want to go, wow. Hey, um, before we dive in and explore what these seven seals are all about, um, I want to share something with you that I got in the mail this past week. I think it was really timely. It's a word from uh, Gary Wilkerson, David Wilkerson's son. Uh, David Wilkerson passed away this past year. He has been a prophetic voice in America for over 40 years. He has faithfully been uh, crying a warning to our nation to wake up, to repent, to follow God. Uh, every year they send, the ministry sends out a standing on the promises of God, a, a promise calendar. Every day of the year there's a scripture, a promise that uh, you can read and think about and meditate on. It's really good. But with this came a little note that said this. Dear friends, for the past four decades this ministry has faithfully warned of coming global cataclysms, economic crises, and times of great trial and tribulation. The Lord also spoke to our hearts that once these things are clearly evident, it would be our role not to say, quote, we told you so, end quote, but rather to speak comfort, to call people into a nearness to Christ, and to call the church to lean on him during these difficult days. That's the spirit in which I want to preach these messages, okay? There's, there's no I told you so, but it's an appeal to us as believers to draw near to Jesus. And it's an appeal to, for us to pray for and to care for this lost world that God has put into our lives, maybe like we never have before. Okay, if you're a serious student of the Bible, you might want to write a couple of these things uh, down, or if you're listening online or if you're here this morning, a couple of notes to keep in mind. This is the first one. As we work our way through chapter 6 of the Revelation, there's great parallels between this chapter and Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, and a lot of things in the book of Zechariah. We're not going to take the time with everything to go back and read the verse in Matthew or Mark or Luke or Zechariah, but I just want you to know there's a lot lot of parallel here. So if you want to jot those down and go back on your own and look at that, you sure can do it. The second thing is chapter six, again, in this vision is a view from heaven towards the earth and what's going to be happening or what is happening on the earth. The third thing, and this one is really important for you to get chapters six through 18 of the revelation cannot be seen as if it is all timeline sequence. Well, this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. It does not work that way. Apocalyptic literature, revelation-type literature, does not work like that. It's not like a photograph and you can just analyze and study everything in it. It's not a timeline sequence. It is much more like art. It's like a picture being drawn, and the point is the finished product. This little video clip, it lasts about a minute long, I think is a great illustration, not so much in terms of the subject matter, but a great illustration of how the revelation is to be seen, okay? So let's roll this little video, and then I'll make a quick comment about it.
the point of that is this. The artist didn't start in the lower left-hand corner and systematically work his way up the picture, did he? Drew some of this, then drew some of that, and then he was over here, and then he was over there, and went back over to this and back. That's how the revelation is. If, if you want to say, Pastor Kent, Pastor Kent, we've got to have sequence, we've got to have order, this is going to drive you nuts. And it's a short drive, by the way. You can almost walk from where you're at. It doesn't work that way, okay? What we're after here is the big picture. What's it going to look like by the time we get to the end of the book? So keep that in mind. I think not so much that the picture was such a great example, but the concept is what we have to wrap our minds around, okay? Here's another kind of a crazy illustration. If you've been reading ahead, and I hope you have been, chapter 6 is all about the seven seals. From there, we're going to look at the seven trumpets and from there we're going to look at the seven bowls very good here's something to understand about this whole thing all right the seals seem to release or to reveal what needs to be made right on the earth it's going to identify the problem trumpets seem to announce the judgments upon what needs to be made right so that it can be made right and then finally the bowls seem to deliver the judgments upon what needs to be made right so that it will be Okay, now there's some cascading impact in some of this, but there's a great debate among scholars as to, so how connected are those three things? Plus, we'll see that there's a whole list of woes that are coming upon the earth, W-O-E, that are, that's coming upon the earth. When I went to Haiti, I, I did this illustration, and they loved it. I mean, they went wild. And I, I went on and on a long time, much longer than I can this morning. But, but these are nesting dolls. Um, you know, dolls within dolls. Uh, Nancy uh, Croft let me borrow these. But, but it's kind of like this. So does the, you know, okay, so this is the first seal. Does the first seal contain the second seal? And then does the second seal contain the third? And does the third contain the fourth? And the fourth, the fifth? And, you know, on and on you go. Or is it more like this? Maybe we should see this as, um, so maybe, um, maybe it's the, the seals. And the seals have the, the trumpets. And the trumpets have the woes. And then the woes have the... Bowls and then the well maybe no maybe it's more like um, oh shoot maybe it's it's kind of like you see you can drive yourself nuts trying to figure out well does this one lead into that one and does that one lead into that one and is it the 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 seals that then lead into the trumpets and the trumpets then lead into the bowls and are they all connected is there sequence or um, do they overlap or is it all the same thing from different perspectives and just each time it gets a little more severe in terms of what it's talking about and it's a mystery okay now i tend to lean towards some sequence in this, but folks, there's overlap as well. It's back to the art drawing, okay? It's not going to be this neat, tidy little sequential thing. We do know this, though. The seven seals are around that scroll. And from the end of November, I, I taught you that the scrolls represent either God's redemptive plan for the entire world through the full history of the world... Or it's possible that it's just more like the chapter about the redemptive plan for the last days. Uh, either of those is, is very possible, okay? Uh, the plan unfolding over time. So in that scroll is God's plan from start to finish. Or maybe the final phase of the plan. Again, there could be great overlap. Remember I talked weeks ago about that thing called prophetic telescoping? That a prophet, is, it's like he has a telescope and he's looking out at a mountain range. And they all kind of compact to each other. He's not standing sideways to see how much distance there is between them. It just kind of gets compressed and he doesn't know how much distance. And sometimes he'll say one thing and it's talking about both mountain ranges. So yet you have to kind of have that latitude as well as we talk about this stuff, okay? This much we know is true. Throughout history, there has been bitter hatred and violent hostility from the forces of evil towards the kingdom of God. Would anybody argue that? Towards the church, there has always been that kind of thing going on. In the end times, that will intensify. 
But God is still going to judge, pass sentence, destroy all the powers and all the forces of evil by the time this is said and done. Okay? So, as we read along through the next dozen chapters and we see the the seven trumpets and the series of woes and the seven bowls of wrath, remember this, God has two purposes in mind in this part of the story. Judgment, wrath against evil, that'll be so clear. But here's the one that is mind-boggling to me. Mercy. Mercy towards anyone, no matter how wicked, evil, or vile they have ever been. If the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, if it leads them to repentance, God is willing to forgive. And you know, I, I live in a place in my little mind where... <laughs> It's over, pal. You've done too much. You'll be astounded as to the grace and mercy of God towards these people all the way through the rest of this book until we get to the end. And there is a point coming where enough is enough. But man, it's a long way out. It's way farther than I would have had it if I were God. Reason number 423, why I'm not God. (laughs) Mercy is all over this book, even as we look at judgment. You'll you'll be amazed. All right, so let's work our way through the seals. I'm not going to read the first couple of them. I'm just going to have the scripture up. Uh, Steve already read it for us, so you can kind of read along and look as I talk. The four horsemen that represent these first four seals have a lot of similarity between the four horses and horsemen that are listed in Zechariah 1 and chapter 6, and yet they're very different. When, When the living creature says, come, It's not, hey, John, come over here and watch what's going to happen. It's to the first horseman, and it's a come forth. And what we understand here is Jesus, the one worthy to break the seals and open the scrolls to unfold God's plan, has the power to summon forth the players. And it's as if he's saying to the one living creature, you tell him now, come. And they are at his beck and call. In every one of these first four, you're going to see God's complete and total control and authority over what's going on. Okay? So, this first one, it's a white horse and it's a conqueror. Folks, there are so many varied opinions by brilliant scholars as to what this first horse is all about. Who it is and what it symbolizes. Um, One of the ideas is that it's a picture of Christ at his triumphal second coming when he raptures the church before all these evil, awful things, all this tribulation uh, happens and all the wrath comes. Uh, The picture is similar to Revelation 19 where we see Jesus coming again, the one who's faithful and true. But there's some differences as well. This horseman has a bow. Jesus in Revelation 19 has a sword. Okay, different kind of crown also that he's wearing. Personally, I think Revelation 19 is the picture of Jesus coming again. I do not think this refers to Christ's second coming. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a whole bunch of scholars who think this is a picture of the Antichrist. That, you know, he is the one who is dressed as an angel of light. And the white here is just to fool everybody. He's going to masquerade as being wonderful and godly and good. But he's seeking to conquer to deceive the followers of Christ. Now, whether that's believers post-rapture uh, or the church is still here, uh, or maybe it's a picture of the battle that's gone on longer than that over time, not sure. Uh, part of their theory is, though, that, hey, the next three horsemen are evil. The first one has to be evil also. They all kind of go together. Another theory is that these four are much like the angel of death in Exodus chapter 12, The angel of death did some nasty things, right? But it was on God's assignment. It wasn't just evil. It was God totally controlling and directing this angel of death from him to go accomplish what he wanted done. That's possible. The fourth one is that it's more of a symbolic picture of the course of New Testament history. That it's a picture symbolic of... Christ and his kingdom. The conquering represents the advancing of the kingdom of God. That over the course of history, people are saved, people are healed, God's kingdom is coming more and more all the time, and yet there's always a battle against evil. 
If it's that one, it would parallel something Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Uh, some think that because white is mentioned here, it's a white horse. And this is true. Every place in the Revelation that uses white always symbolizes Christ or his followers or his rewards or his victories or his blessing. Um, I tend to think it's probably that last one, although I can see how people could be convinced of, of some of the other ones. If, if chapter 6 and at least these first four seals depict a longer view of history rather than just right there at the end, then I think it's real possible that that flows with what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 because he listed things that parallel these first four horsemen. But then he said, but that's just the beginning of the birth pangs. And so this could be kind of a precursor to the great tribulation and the wrath that are still coming. If that's the case, then it's like the first horseman represents good and the other three represent evil. Oh my gosh, three to one. Does that concern anybody? That should never concern you. If God is the one, I don't care if it's 303 on the other side. It's God against the forces of evil. And that to me is a picture of the battle that's been going on ever since Jesus came to this earth. There's a fight going on and I think it's going to intensify in the end. All right, the second seal. Notice the keywords, it was granted. This, this red horse, it was granted to him to take peace from the earth. Who granted that to him? God. Again, every one of these horsemen has something listed in the scripture that talks about God's sovereign control. Red is symbolic of bloodshed, the large sword of major world conflicts. And this particular horseman will take peace from the earth. Now, that's interesting, I think, because this was written at a time when the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, ruled the, the whole earth. There was peace in the world because of Rome. I also think that this is a real setup because this horseman is coming to take peace from the earth, which is going to cause the inhabitants of this earth to desperately want someone who will bring world peace. Oh, you mean like the Antichrist? See, I think there's a setup here. Because what does he promise? He's going to bring peace. And by this time, people are going to be all for that. Oh, yes, that'll be great. So I think it's a setup in some ways. Again, this fits with the Gospels, where Jesus talked about wars, rumors of wars, nations rising up against nation. That could easily be this second horseman. The third seal, the third horseman, is a black horse. And it represents famine and also high inflation. It's given scales. Those scales are the kinds of scales that were used to measure and weigh out grain for sale. Okay? Remember again, God's sovereign control. There's a voice coming out from the four living creatures. Who's calling the shots in this? Not the horseman. God. God is the one who says a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Denarius is a day's wages, okay? And what this means is inflation is going to be running rampant because when this was written, you could buy four to 50, excuse me, 12 to 15 quarts of wheat for a day's wages. Now you can only get one. Inflation is out of control. But he also says don't harm the oil and the wine. I think what that's talking about, you see, barley and wheat are an annual crop. And you can just, if your crop goes bad, just plant a new one next year. Oil comes from the olive trees and wine comes from the vineyards, from the grapevines. If those are harmed, you don't just lose a crop. It takes a long time to replenish. And I think part of God's sovereignty in this is, I don't want it to get that bad yet at this point in time. So the mandate from God is... Don't harm those things. There's also, and I think this is kind of cool, there's also some scholars who think that there's a symbolic hidden meaning here. Don't harm the oil and the wine. Oil in Scripture is symbolic for the Holy Spirit. Wine is symbolic. We took it this morning for what? The blood of Christ. And the message coming from the throne of God is, don't hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't hinder the power of the cross and the work of the gospel in people's lives. Even though things are going to get terrible and the enemy seems to be unleashed like a flood, the gospel is still going to go forward. 
And God's going to see to it and make sure that happens. I like that. I think that's a cool idea. The fourth seal. Again, it talks about authority being given to this ashen horse. Who's given the authority? God. He's sovereign. He's in control. This horse is ashen or pale. Um, Probably pale green or pale greenish yellow. Just a blech. I mean, gosh, you look like death warmed over. Anybody that looks like that is usually kind of green in the gills, yellowy green. It's just nasty, okay? This horse is named Death. I mean, it's got a name, death. And either it means more death is coming, or it could also mean that there's a lot of death that's going to result from the sword and the famine and the pestilence and the wild beasts. It's almost like these four horsemen are galloping together to bring this inevitable death upon the world. Hades, it says, follows this horse. That's not hell. Hell and Hades are two different things. Hell is the final assignment place for the wicked. Hades is the place of the dead, the unrighteous dead. And it's almost as if this horse is marching and Hades is following along to kind of gather and collect up this enormous amount of wicked dead people for the final judgment that's coming upon them. When we get to Revelation chapter 20, it says a quarter of the earth. If it happened tomorrow, which I don't think it's gonna, but if it happened tomorrow, that would be one and three quarter billion people. Can you even, I have no place to put that, but that's how awful and devastating this is going to be. But one thing I want you to know. Christ is the one calling forth these horsemen to come. It's not him calling these disasters into existence, okay? It's, it's not him saying, this is what you get. But rather, it's releasing the consequence of rebellion and people's evil, awful, wicked choices over the centuries. Man is responsible for this. And so it's like the Lord saying, okay, this is what you want. This is what you'll get. But you'll see as we continue to go on, there, there, is, there is repentance and redemption and reconciliation that is at the heart of God behind this whole thing. Okay, everybody take a deep breath, all right? This is heavy, isn't it? Isn't it? And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, I have to tell you that in my research, I found a fifth horse, more wicked more evil than any of the other four. No, not hidden somewhere in secrecy in ancient Babylon. Not some part of a great satanic evil Kabbalah. A horse out in plain sight. <laughs> you been to DIA? You've seen that wicked, ugly, awful... Ugh! Here's something you might not have known. The sculptor that made that horse, his name is Luis Jimenez... That horse fell on him and killed him. Now, I don't know what exactly that's saying to you Bronco fans, but I think you need to think about this, okay? Okay, I'm just kidding. I just felt like we needed to lighten the mood for a minute, okay? Because this is pretty serious, heavy stuff. Let's shift the scene, okay? It's almost like a pause in the action happens here at verse number 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they'd maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now that last little phrase, those who dwell on the earth, we'll come back to in a minute. But I want to make a couple comments about this because I think it's important. I don't know how long a time frame this represents, whether it's from the first century when the church started up to this moment in time. But there has always been persecution and martyrdom of Christians, hasn't there? That's kind of a foreign concept to us as Americans, but it is happening all around the world today, and it's been happening. We don't know where exactly this altar is located or which altar it is for sure. We know absolutely it's not the altar of sacrifice because that one's no longer needed, is it? Jesus took care of that one. But it's an altar up there in heaven. 
And these martyrs' death, it's as if it's a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance to God that, that stirs his heart of mercy and compassion for them and their sacrifice. It also moves him to righteous anger and, and the need for justice. These martyred saints cry out, How long, O Lord? But it's important to know it's not the normal word for Lord. The normal word is the word Greek word kurios, which means how long, Lord and Master? The word here is despotes, which means divine, sovereign, ruler over all. Come on, God, you're in charge and you're holy. You can't tolerate evil and you're true. You are faithful to keep your covenant promises. Folks, these martyrs are really saying to him this. excuse me, God, how long until you avenge what's happened to us? You're holy. You're true. Come on. Now, before you go, wow, that takes a lot of guts to talk to God that way. I think it's important for us to understand that God's children can have that kind of honest dialogue with him. We can. They can. Has God forgotten these martyrs? Is his timing imperfect? No, his timing's perfect. Remember, the scripture says to us, next verse, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So martyrs, I got this under control. And then what Jesus said in the gospel of Luke, I tell you, God will bring about justice for his elect. He will not delay over them. It's going to happen, folks. And I want to say this to you. You haven't, obviously, you're here to listen to me today, so you haven't been martyred. But God has not forgotten you in your situation. Those places in your life where you cry out, Lord, how long? How long is this going to keep happening in my life, in my kid's life, in my marriage, in my family, at work, in my neighborhood, with my friends, with how long? I don't have an answer, but God knows, and he's not forgotten you. Okay? And his timing's perfect, by the way. That little portion of scripture ends with judgment will come upon those who dwell upon the earth. That is a very important phrase. We're going to see it over and over and over again through the rest of this book. And it is an idiomatic phrase that always doesn't just talk about people who live here, because we live here. It's always talking about evil, wicked, rebellious people who are in opposition to God. Every time it says those who dwell upon the earth, the earth dwellers, it's talking about the evil people. Not you, not me. They're going to get it. We're not. But how can we still be here in all this calamity? I said it before, I'll say it again. God's got great aim. If judgment falls, God can protect us. And I believe he will. Next scripture. Uh, They were given white robes, told to rest a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. These white robes are symbolic of the, the rest God wants them to enter into. You've accomplished your mission. You've done what I've called you to do. You've given your very life for the sake of the gospel. You rest. Ultimate victory is coming. That robe's a sign of the ultimate victory that's on the way. I don't think these are resurrected yet. I think that's still coming. But it's a statement about, well done, good and faithful servant. You have a special place in my heart. I'll take care of all this. But this little phrase, until the number of fellow servants, fellow martyrs was complete, that's not a math equation. And that's not to be seen as it's one billion 200,487,316, and when that last one's killed, then it's over. Now, God knows the number. God knows the very number of hairs on every person's head. Oh, and he wanted me to thank some of you for making that easier for him as they keep falling out. But it's not about God not knowing. The point is, it's not about the number. It's about the completion of what God is doing. And when it's over, it's going to be over. All right. Then the sixth seal, real quickly. This one leads to a great earthquake where the sun becomes like sackcloth made of hair and the moon becomes like blood. You know, when I taught this in Haiti, this had very special meaning to them. January 12th, 2010, severe, major, massive earthquake hit that nation. Killed probably a quarter of a million people. This is going to be worse than that. 
There are some scholars who go, oh, this is just symbolic. It's not literal. This is symbolic of the world's upheaval and the political turmoil that will come to the nations. Baloney, it's an earthquake. It could have said political upheaval. It doesn't. It says earthquake. And it's going to be a massive earthquake. It's interesting, Joel chapter 2 speaks of a time when the sun is going to turn to darkness and the moon like blood, just like it says here. But it says there that's going to be before the terrible day of the Lord comes, which to me means it's a part of the tribulation, but it's not the wrath of God yet. Jesus said this about that in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. See, it's it's verses like this that cause me to to lean towards that post-tribulation rapture position. It could be pre-wrath, but it sounds like we're going to be here when this goes on. And it's not uncommon, folks, either, biblically, for the earth to experience earthquakes and various kinds of travail and upheaval that's connected to man's sin. Now, I'm not, you know, love your mother, you know, big earth greenie and all that kind of thing. But I think there is a connection between God's creation and us and our sin. Not to make us, you know, eco-crazies or any of that kind of stuff, but there's connection. The earth pays the price for sin at times. That's a whole other deal. Anyhow, so these stars are going to fall from the sky. There's going to be like figs cast, unripened figs cast off a fig tree. We better hope they're like figs. If they're much bigger than that, there are stars bigger than this planet. There are stars bigger than the sun. If one of those hits, there's going to be nobody saying, fall on us. Splat! It's too late. It already done fell on him. But somehow in this, John is just struggling for words. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island removed out of their places. Can you imagine being him for a minute and seeing this? I have no word. I don't know what to even say. I don't know how to describe this. This is so overwhelming. It's so mind-boggling. It's just so awesome and terrifying. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, they're going to hide themselves in caves and among the rocks and they're going to say to the mountains, fall on us. I would rather you crushed me than me have to experience the wrath of God. Understand this. This is another one of those places where the kings of the earth is synonymous with the dwellers of the earth. This is not talking about what's going to happen to believers. It's talking about what's going to happen to the ungodly. Folks, for as awful as this is, I hate to say this to you, it's going to get much worse. This is not the wrath of God yet, and the wrath of God is much worse. We still have the seven trumpets and the woes and the bowls to go through. And these guys are right. Mountains, rocks fall on us. Keep us from the wrath of the Lamb, that great terrible day. Who can stand in that day? You know what the answer to that is? Apart from Jesus, nobody. But in him, if the church is still here, and I think we will be, we're going to be okay. It's going to be like Israel during the plagues in Egypt. You know, the first few plagues, everyone kind of experienced them, and I think it's kind of like the tribulation. We're going to experience that. We're in some of it, and it's probably going to get worse. But by the time they got to where the hailstones were falling and killing the cows... No hail fell in the land of Goshen. They were protected. And when the death angel came, the last big one, anyone covered by the blood was okay. And I think it's going to be like that. I see a a pattern there. I see a parallel there that I think is going to be how it is. Last thing, Jesus likened this to the days of Noah. He said in Matthew 24, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. In other words, life just was going on. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. I think the tribulation is a lot like the mocking and the ridicule that Noah experienced. 
Remember, they just laughed at him and thought, what a fool you are for building this boat. The flood is like the wrath of God. And if you'll notice, the ark didn't remove them. It protected them because they came back to this earth. And God's plan is for this earth. He's going to make all things new. Okay, we're going to finish there. Chapter 7 is another one of those major interludes. We'll get to it next week. Let me leave you with two thoughts, okay? First one is this. Next scripture. No, go to the next one. I'm sorry. Um, As I live, declares the Lord, middle of that verse, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Folks, that is the story of the book of the Revelation. God will judge the world. He will judge evil. He takes no pleasure in it. His heart is always for mercy. His heart is always to extend an opportunity to repent. Even through the tribulation and the wrath and the bowls and the trumpets and everything we're going to see. He always wants there to be repentance. But the thing I want to leave you with today is that's not talking about you. If you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're not the wicked. You're the redeemed. You're the righteous. And this next scripture is for us. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. You know, I, I wish I could promise you that, hey, it's just all going to get better and good times are ahead. I, I can't in good conscience say that to you. But I know that scripture is true. I do. I know that God will see us through difficult times if they're coming and if we're here. We just need to continue to hope in him, trust him. And I want to say this to you as well. If you're a Christian, you're not the wicked That's wonderful. But there's never a better time ever to keep your accounts short with God, to be pursuing him and to being obedient to his word. I'm not calling your salvation into question. I don't want you to live in that place of iffiness. But Jesus wants a bride that's pure and spotless and holy. And he's calling us to to that kind of life, to be sold out to him, committed to him. Now, if you're here today and you're hearing all this and you've never placed your faith in Christ, it would be very reasonable for you to sit here and go, Pastor, you're scaring the hell out of me. That would be my hope. That would be the point. And I don't say that to be funny. I mean that. God would want you to realize this is serious business. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, you're in trouble. But you can do something about it. Martin Luther said that there were only two days that counted today because we got today and we're all alive. And that day, the day when Jesus comes again and settles all the accounts one way or the other. My great hope for you is if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, today's your day. And if you're a Christian, a believer, that you'll make sure that you're walking in a manner worthy of what the Lord calls us to. Because as we do that, then our hope increases for when he comes again. We'll hope for that great day. We won't shrink away thinking, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't catch me in this. Hope geometrically increases as we walk in obedience and purity. It just does. So I want you to stand. I want to pray for you. Um, Lee, can I ask you again to help me this morning? If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ... Lee has come down here and he would be happy to talk with you and explain to you how to come to that place of placing your faith in Jesus. If you're a believer, but you've got some other issues that you'd like some prayer for, we've got some ministry team people who are going to come down here in just a second and you can come join with them and they'll be happy to stay and pray with you. I'm praying and dismiss us, but you are welcome to stay and pray for as long as you might need to for anything that you want prayer for, okay? So Father, we thank you today for for your word, uh, for the book of the Revelation. Uh, Lord, it's kind of sobering, and it's only going to get more so. But we thank you that we don't have to live in a place of fear. We cling to your sovereignty and your goodness because laced throughout these next 12 chapters is going to be that reminder. You got it under control. You're still sovereign. 
You're working this for a good purpose and plan. So Lord, we trust you in that. And pray that uh, we will be a people who continue to draw near to you during difficult, perilous times, during times of chaos and confusion and calamity, that we will draw ever closer to you, Lord, to find your strength and your peace and your comfort and your assurance in the midst of the storm. We bless you for that truth today and pray that this book continues to motivate us to live according to your word and according to your ways so that we look forward to that day when this will all be said and done. In the name of Jesus, we pray that. Amen. So bless you. Have a great week. See you Sunday.